that is, of course, Gene Bajala. Gene, what's up, man? Hey, it's good to be with you guys. How are you guys doing this wonderful Sunday? Really good, man. I will say, and this might sound either terrifying and horrible or wonderful to the people out there, today on this beautiful Sunday in New York City, we had a left com uh, Bronx Zoo visit. Just a bunch of... Uh, it, uh, left communists, you know, internationalists going down to the zoo together, seeing the bears, uh, seeing uh, avian, seeing the aviary, seeing um, seeing the platypus. See? No, no platypus. That would have been inappropriate. I think Gene, that would have been appropriate, right? Yeah, if you'd seen the undialectical platypus, yeah, um, definitely it would have been a uh, real event of the day. I don't think platypi can survive in the Bronx. I'm just throwing that out it, there. It's platypodes because it's Greek and not Latin. See, this is why we bring you on the show. This is why we brought you on, man, is to correct us with your, uh, with your wonderful uh, Greek knowledge. How's it going, man? Um, how are things at Sublation? How are things at This Is Revolution? How are things in life? Things are good. Um, you know, This Is Revolution is plodding along. We're, we're doing well. Uh, Pascal is unfortunately unwell at the moment, so we're all thinking about him, hoping that he's going to get well and recover. So, you know, I'm not religious, but uh, Pascal is. So if you have thoughts and prayers for him, it would be, uh, you know, really great for us at the TIR crew to to have those thoughts and prayers, because uh, I know they mean a lot to him. Oh, sorry to hear that. Get well soon, Pascal. We love yes, what you do. please. And uh, I'm just back from the UK. I was. Uh, you went for the coronation. That's so nice, man. As a as a UK subject, you thought to yourself, "I cannot see a new king rise to the throne." <laughs> On my television at home in Missouri, I had to go there and I had to go see it in person. Yeah, I've been really enjoying the coronation spirit that was in the <laughs> UK when I was there. I, I, I particularly enjoy the way that the royal family is barbarized by capitalism mm. you know because you have all the companies out there doing their coronation deals it's like a deal fit for a king <laughs> ha, buy two pots of marmite and get a third one for free you know yeah no that's great man that's that that really like uh, shows the majesty of the crown and what it means to people in the year 2023 it's a it's a big deal it's a it's a it's an end of an era and uh, you know, Charles will be on the money soon. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, 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 don't, you know, I was obviously extremely upset when the queen died sure. uh, because I was there for six months in the UK and I was like, I'm going to be there when she dies. And she didn't die while I was there. And then as soon as I come back, she passes away and I miss all the mourning of the nation. My poor little son, you mm. know, he came back from school in Missouri and he said, Dad, the queen's dead oh. because, uh, and now he calls the king. He's the queen as well, which is quite, quite funny. He hasn't worked out monarchy yet, but he's getting there. <laughs> I mean, you, you like all jokey aside, right? You're a Republican. Are you raising your child to be a Republican or are you raising him to be a monarchist? What is it? Well, uh, you know, naturally I'm a Republican. Uh, I think there is a proud Republican tradition in the United Kingdom that is often obfuscated by this late 19th century iteration of monarchical majesty that was uh, whipped up, you know, in the 1870s uh, to uh, create, you know, national feeling at a time of crisis. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, obviously a Republican, although it's not, it's not really something I ever really think about because, uh, 
knowing our luck, if, you know, if the liberals in Britain abolish the monarchy, they're just going to feel very self-satisfied mm. that they've managed to get a kind of trans, uh, you know, Nigerian immigrant mm. former Barclays Bank executive as head of state, <laughs> and they'll call, they'll call that progress. Well, but... <laughs> Listen, you, I mean, they're partly on the way there. I, I wonder if the UK is ready for their first woke monarch because uh, Charles, King Charles, as we can call him now, is like really into organic and green and like crunchy stuff. And he's going around talking about healing the world and whatever. This is like James Lindsay and all the other uh, conservatives' uh, greatest nightmare. True, but... Perhaps Charles has a deeper agenda, which is to restore feudalism and oh. the natural order of things to Great Great Britain. You know, he wants to turn us into an agrarian society. Honestly, yes, Britain might do better he going back one mode of production. <laughs> it could be much worse <laughs> than what they're doing now. I, I read something about how he was, he's familiar with new right thinkers like Alain de Benoit, Benoist, however you pronounce it. Is that, is that true? Do you, are you familiar with his uh, intellectual background? I know he's, he's got some sicko architectural uh, school that he uh, prefers. Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, I don't know too much about his, uh, you know, intellectual background. Uh, I've never been a monarchy watcher. Mm. So, you know, a lot of these things just like fly by me. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, he was well known for his conservation position, you know, opinions. Uh, he was often mocked for talking to plants. Mm. That was his thing. And he was a pioneer of uh, organic bis uh, organic uh, farming. And you can buy his biscuits. His his farms produce organic biscuits that you can you can enjoy uh, King Charles's shortbread. Um, and in terms of his architectural stuff, yeah, he has like a conservative architectural taste and was not shy about telling people that he was into his conservative architectural things, which I think is, you know, people make a big deal of it, but that is his least negative uh, <laughs> uh, point in my, uh, in my, uh, in my humble opinion. Listen, not, I, nobody knows who these uh, accounts are on Twitter with like the ancient Roman uh, bust avatar. And it's called like cultural critic. And everything is like, this is what they took from us. And it shows like Birmingham City Hall in 1870. And then it shows the brutalist one in 1970. It's like, we have to go back. That, that, might, be, that might be the king now. Maybe the king is taking all that wonderful leisure time that he has living off his tenancy, living off of his real estate empire. And He's become a pure poster. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I have to say there are some pretty hideous, uh, brutalist buildings in Great Britain. Uh, there's no doubt about that. My former college in Oxford, St. Anthony's College, has this hideous building called the Hildebest Building, which they're constantly dumping money into because it's so poorly constructed. It's like a concrete monstrosity that leaks. Mm. But it's a listed building, um, you know. So, yeah, they did a lot of this uh, brutalist architecture. But, you know, in its appropriate place, some of it can be quite nice. You know, I think uh, I think uh, a mix of the old and the new. I mean, there are some pretty terrible neoclassical buildings out there as well. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's all much to much. I'll take my architecture on a case-by-case -case basis. Agreed with that. Agreed with that. Um, what's it like in, uh, say Missouri compared to what it's like in London right now? When I look over at like all the news coming from the UK, especially the economic data, you see what happened with the, the 43 day reign of trussonomics 
and the declining living standards, which happening, what's happening to the NHS, the whole bread and circuses thing of uh, this new coronation of the monarch. It seems from the from across the pond to be like kind of like heading towards a Mad Max scenario. Is it normal over there? Does it feel like the same as America? London's probably different from a lot of other parts of the UK. What's your take? So I was up in Hull, my oh. hometown, which is uh, for most of the time. I was in a conference. I did go around London. I did stay with a friend in London as well. So London is London. Uh, you know, it's still expensive. Everything is, you know, cleaner than in Hull. You know, the streets are more well kept. Uh, the, you know, the former working and middle class houses are now gentrified in London. So they're all like tarted up and look super fancy they have extensions they're well maintained and well kept whereas the equivalent houses in hull are like borderline derelict because no one's taking care of them so london seems affluent busy cosmopolitan as ever people still want to be there you know i was in brent brentford which is like way out in the west near hounslow near the airport you know former working class neighborhood everything looks really spanking new their park is nice and i was you know walking through stoke newington which was where i used to hang about mm. when i was a university student where all the kurds that's are. like the williamsburg to of uh london right yeah well it's totally gentrified yeah. the former kurdistan workers party kind of uh, uh headquarters which was an old post office is now a uh, an urban outfitters <laughs> they have a they have a cereal restaurant where you can buy a bowl of fruit loops for the 12 pounds and all that kind of stuff. Now, up in Hull, things are pretty grim. Uh, town, which, you know, like the downtown in Hull, you know, cities in Britain have town centers where people do shopping and stuff. So many boarded up places. They're doing some, you know, they're doing some like attempts to gentrify the place. But, you know, it's looking pretty rough. People are complaining about the prices. The electricity prices are oh, expensive. Yeah. Uh, and there's a Byzantine electricity system in Britain where, you know, electricity is you buy your electricity from a company which is which is buying that electricity of another company. And you have all this kind of like shock prices. Food is expensive. I really noticed the price rise. Mm. I mean, I was th like I said, I was there for the first half of 2022 and it was pretty bad then. But, the you know, meat, eggs, lamb, that kind of stuff. It's just expensive. Uh, Are there still like marked down, nearly rotting sandwiches that you can get at every Tesco? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then I think we're good. You can you can still get your nearly rotten sandwiches, but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bleak. I was talking to my friends in the university sector. You know, they were all, you know, it's been it's absolute brutality in the university sector. One person told me, you know, he thinks the government is basically just trying to get rid of twenty percent of the universities uh, and things like that. Uh, you know, the government is entirely illegitimate. Uh, Labour will probably win. We just had local elections. They, uh, but it will win by default. I don't see much popular enthusiasm. But people are really sick of uh, the conservative government. It's, you know... But isn't, been... isn't Starmer tacking to the right nonetheless? He, he just came out with this... Uh, he reversed on making universities free again? Yeah. I mean, Starmer's been tacking the, to the right ever since he was elected. Mm. I mean, he's pulling this whole kind of you know, a lot of this old nationalist rec rhetoric out. There's a concerted effort to liquidate the left off the Labour Party. Yeah, they threw Corbyn out, right? They delisted him. Yeah, they delisted him. You know, there's a whole thing now with Diane Abbott, who is uh, uh, another left-wing MP, MP, former Corbyn lover, as it were, back in the mm. day. Uh, I mean, she's uh, she made a, like a very stupid statement about racism. It was a real clangor, but, you know... 
a lot of people in the Labour Party have made some stupid statements. It's interesting that they're going for her at the moment. Mm. So there's definitely this attempt to, you know, uh, by the Labour Party to appeal to a broad section of society who are tired of the Conservatives, who are, you know, tired of Brexit. Uh, you know, I think the balance of power has shifted, the balance of opinion has shifted against Brexit mm. for a number of different reasons. You know, the outcomes don't seem to be, you know, what anybody was told that it was going to be. And uh, so people are kind of disillusioned. Uh, my brother, he was on strike. You know, he's been on strike. He's a nurse. He, he, he's he been taking industrial actions. My good friend, Stefan Bertram Lee, who I had a good uh, opportunity to meet up with in London, he was showing me statistics that the we're seeing a wave of an unprecedented wave of strikes mm. in the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, the railways, you know, I was traveling across the country on railway. I was always worried that, you know, my train might get canceled because of industrial action. Mm. So it seems like a very kind of, it's a zombie government. Uh, but and yet it's also a zombie labor party. I mean, it's, it's as an outside observer, it seems to me like what's left of the socialist forces within the labor party. How much longer can you continue to ride this horse for? I mean, does it, it does the, does the labor party still even have the backing of the trade union Congress? I mean, there are still trade unions that are affiliated to the Labour Party, but there's definitely efforts to sideline them. And of course, you know, a lot of union leadership wants to maintain a relationship with the Labour Party because, you know, that's where their bread is buttered. And there are real reasons, like they want to have access to be able to, like, talk to policy leaders and not be completely, you know, outside of the system uh, as well. But there's, you know, it's a real crisis on, uh, on the left, the, you know, the Labour Party, you know, has always been a complicated prospect. Uh, I, you know, I'll be honest here. I actually just uh, resigned from the Labour Party. I've been a Labour Party m member for years. Uh, and, you know, I was just like, I'm not paying my $2 for this anymore. This is, you know, there isn't even a pretense of, of, of uh, you know, any fidelity to the less. Maybe we'll see a bit more public spending. Uh, in certain areas. I mean, that's what happened under Tony Blair. You know, there was an increase in public spending, uh, especially in education and health. But, you know, like the health system, because you have a nationalized health system, it's as good as the government wants it to be. And at the moment, they don't want to put the money in to the health system. And so you have waiting lists, delays, alienation. There's a growing private sector, vampiric private sector. And, uh, and my whole family works in the health service. And all, my mother was a nurse. My father was a medical doctor. My brother is a nurse. His wife is a, uh, uh, is a midwife. My other brother, although he doesn't work for many, worked as part of the COVID testing uh, regime that they had. And, you know, they'll tell you there's so many levels of graft that have been inserted into the nhs with this public private partnerships with this hiving off of uh hiving off of services uh, like the way they transport blood around the place etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a you know it's classic neoliberalism you know take the state institutions and make them a money-making uh, opportunity for people you know friends with the government so you're seeing a lot of this and you know the irony is for example we're also seeing like a huge expansion of home building 
you know, home building always goes in waves. It might, it's gone, it goes in waves. There was a wave in the 90s. You can kind of tell all the houses that were built in the 90s because they have a style. And there's this new wave going on. Uh, and what's I find so interesting about it, it's like the prices of these new houses are just really high as well. Right. So, like, who's going to be able to afford them? You know, there's a lot of uncertainty, frustration, and disillusionment, uh, you know, amongst my friends who you know, a lot of them aren't particularly political, but they're very frustrated with this uh, government. And, you know, the cadre of Tories are really like the absolute joker squad of, of you know, you have a bunch of grifting, grifting South Asians, uh, some lunatic, like, trees, you know, uh, neo-feudal reactionaries. Mm. Jason, like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Like yeah. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who my uncle delivered something to his house once actually my oh, uncle yeah. my uncle on my mother's side was a lorry driver and he's been he says uh reese mark was having uh, broadband installed in his outhouse so <laughs> so so you have this you have this uh you have this whole it feels like a, a country in limbo and it's felt like a country in limbo since uh, uh, since Brexit because you know I know there's all the left Arctic, uh, you know arguments for Brexit etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know, Bre Brexit, the way it was realized, was ultimately as a right-wing political project. Uh, and, you know, we're reaping the fruits of that, you know. And the benefits that were supposed to accrue from it, well, they're not happening, right? And people are like, well, I was duped or I told you so. Uh, and, you know, the discourse is not as spicy as it was before uh, Britain left the EU. But now, I mean, there's just so many issues coming up with the house price, with the house prices, food prices, uh, you know, the difficulties of people who used to, you know, live abroad, the growing complexity of the immigration system. I mean, there's still a lot of wealth in Britain. Mm. You know, people still want to live in London. But you go outside of London, you know, outside of a few major urban centers where there's like money and things, it's kind of desolate. Uh, it, you know, Hull is one of the big losers from all this, a town that voted for Brexit, but a town that's economy was built on trade with Europe. So you have this kind of paradox. So I don't make the arguments for or against the EU, but the concrete reality has been, you know, and maybe we would have had similar economic crisis, but certainly COVID and Brexit have created a kind of instability in Britain an enormous amount of frustration, but there is no political expression for it. Right. That's the interesting thing is that it's not even just that labor isn't uh, on board with the series, with the waves of industrial action. It's that from at least what I've seen, uh, labor leadership is telling uh, its members, its uh, its MPs to actively not go out and uh, support the picket lines, which is a startling thing to imagine from a labor party. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm trying to think of some good way to segue over to Erdogan in Turkey. And Andy, I don't have it. Do you have a way to? Uh, oh, cause... Well, you know, he mentioned the Kurdish population of London previously. There and we it's go. PKK oh. social center. And, uh, of course, in uh, Turkey, in I think one week from today, there's going to be an election. And hopes are very high that uh, Erdogan, the you know villain for many reasons, but especially in, in regards to, to Kurdish people, is... Looks like he might be on the way out. Yes. Well, what is there? What can I say about Turkey? I mean, it's Sunday today. The election is fast approaching in a week. 
um, I just saw footage just before I came on to record with you guys. There's been an attack on one of the opposition's uh, election rallies in uh, one of the provincial cities in Turkey. So things are looking nasty. Erdogan just also gave a rally in which he did a, he played a deep fake video of, of PKK leaders um, supporting his, his uh, op, uh, supporting the opposition. So, you know, things are, wow. things are getting was, nasty in this election. Was the quality of it such that it was believable, you think, for the average person there? Um, I think the people who are going to believe it are going to believe it. But yeah, the quality, let's just say they're not sending their best to the yeah. video audio <laughs> Uh, department of the justice and development party so, mm. can you can you describe this deep fake yeah it's like a video of different leaders of the pkk expressing support for uh, the opposition parties it's like a montage of uh, of um, hated kurdish leaders in the mountains uh, giving this support it's not very plausible but you know it's hardly new it's just an iteration on what always used to happen in Turkey, which is, you know, people would post fake photos. There's a lot of tr- Twitter trolling that takes place. Almost certainly the government has its own troll army, which it uses to discipline dissidents and attack people with, you know, alternative opinions and different opinions. So, yeah, it's been a nasty election season. The, the, it's, Turkey already, already has had a tradition of problematic elections certainly they it's a bit of like a managed democracy and kind of always has been right yeah i mean there's a saying people say that turkey has free elections but they're not fair elections Mm. so you know often you'll have well especially in recent years you have a you know a, a, a very dominant position of the government over not just the state media but also the private sector and their media there's been you know a concentration of power uh in you know in the realm of radio, television, internet, and all those kind of things. There are still alternative voices, but in the very much marginalized, uh, even by Turkey's historical standards. So we have, this, we have this creeping authoritarianism in Turkey, or should I say we have a new iteration of authoritarianism mm. in, in Turkey, which is very much centered around the ruling party and around the personality of Erdogan, who has become the kind of Bonaparte of the Turkish system. It wasn't always like this under the AKP. The AKP was a broad political party when it came to power with different centers of power. Erdogan was certainly a powerful individual with a big following, but you know, this was a party that drew support uh, from uh, not just conservatives, but also some liberals and even leftists who saw it as a vehicle through which the dominance of the old state-orientated, large capitalist, Western Anatolian uh, you know, elites, that, that old elite, it became a vehicle through which they could be challenged. Uh, but wasn't the, if I recall correctly, and it's been a while since I looked into it, um, Erdogan's whole gambit was um, to try to, um, to push like a soft Islamism, right? Like traditionalism in the cultural sphere, but then also try to cultivate green capitalism, not in the sense that we understand green capitalism, but try to become the sort of money filter, the capital filter for the larger um, Middle Eastern uh, economy. Is that right? Like trying to make, give Turkey like a prominent position in terms of Middle Eastern capital. Yes. I mean, uh, and this was supported by the United States, especially during the war on terror, because 
Erdogan seemed at the time to represent a new model of Islamism that was parallel to the tradition of Christian democracy in Europe. It was seen as a more tolerant version of Islam, a more quote-unquote Western version of Islam. You know, I remember going to a talk maybe about a decade ago where a speaker came and actually said Erdogan created a non-ideological Islam, which what they actually meant was that he created a neoliberal Islamism. Mm. <laughs> and uh, this represents some longer-term trends in, in Turkey. You know, when the Republic of Turkey was founded, you know, it was founded, you know, to a backdrop of war, genocide, societal collapse. And, you know, by the end of, you know, by the mid-1920s, the only kind of dynamism left in society was the state. And the state took this kind of state capitalist role, heavy role in the economy. And because of the Ottoman Empire's historical weakness vis-a-vis -vis the West, the new cadre that came to dominate the Republic of Turkey, which came out of that late Ottoman crisis, saw cultural westernization as being, you know, not just uh, uh, an intellectual project, but a way to be accepted by Western capital, by dressing like them, by integrating into the Western world, by becoming part of the state system. And what we saw, especially in the 60s and 70s with the emergence of Islamism, you had a more kind of social revolutionary version of Islam coming to the fore, which Erdogan to a certain degree comes out of that. However, after the 1980s coup in Turkey, uh, you had a reordering of uh, the Turkish economic landscape and political landscape, a shift towards neoliberalism, midwifed by the Turkish military, and carried on by Turgut Özel, who was a former UN uh, uh, World Bank employee, who had been brought in by the military, who fell out with the military, uh, but basically was acceptable enough for the military to accept him in power. And under the... Uh, you know, the Ozal order, we see, you know, Turkey opening up to Western investment. We see a lot of the old state enterprises going by the way. There was a lot of, before the 1980s, there was a lot of import substitute industrialization taking place in Turkey. A lot of that was gotten rid of, and you have a more market-orientated Turkish economy. And some of the big winners from that were these small, petty bourgeois, provincial capitalists who, you know, invested in a lot of light industries, so foodstuffs, later on textiles and white goods, for example. So we had this new provincial capitalist class, which to a certain extent was culturally differentiated from the traditional uh, capitalist elites of the country that had, you know, that had basically come into being by stealing Armenian and Greek property after the mm. foundation of the Republic of Turkey. Now, this new... And was that the westernizing bourgeoisie that they were partially <coughs> displacing? Yeah, that was the more western-orientated uh, bourgeois elements of society. But you have the growth of this provincial uh, yeah. bourgeoisie, which has a kind of uh, Cal you know, Calvinistic uh, ethic, as it were. At least when they were starting off, they had a Calvinistic ethic. Uh, you know, and... You know, a lot of the conflict that was framed as secular Turkey versus, you know, religious Turkey, you know, had a strong, uh, you know, center-periphery dynamic to it. It had a class dynamic to it uh, as well. You know, for example, there's a book, uh, I forget the name of the book, actually. It's about class in Turkey. 
uh, talks about, for example, during the early Republican period, even though your provincial merchants and capitalists were, for example, wealthier than the state officers who were coming into the provinces to administer, socially they were seen as inferior, right? Uh, and so, you know, after the 1980s, we see a lot of these religiously orientated groups who had perhaps been, you know, typical petty bourgeois elements attracted to anti-imperialism, you know, saw Western capitalism a threat. threat. Well, neoliberalism suddenly became a big opportunity for these people. Mm. And so Erdogan, to a certain ex extent, reflected that change that was taking place, that this new Islamism that he, he was forwarding was a neoliberal Islamism, which at the core of his coalition was this provincial capitalist elite that had cultural grievances against the old capitalist elites, but was very happy to sign on to, you know, integrating into the Western bloc because where are they trading their goods? Europe, Middle East, you know, and, and places like that. And of course, right. for, for the United States, Turkey offered an alternative model to the Saudi Arabian model. Hmm. So Erdogan played this kind of liberal reforming Islamist, at least for the first act uh, of uh, him being in power, and many other groups who were alienated by the existing political order in Turkey, either explicitly or implicitly supported him. So, uh, and, and I, I can't wait till Erdogan, you know, loses this election maybe by a hair, and all of the anti-imperialists on Twitter start calling it a color revolution. Well, you, by like by like World Bank IMF uh, inflation hawks who didn't like his uh, monetary policies or something. Is that is that happening? Did I just speak that into existence? I mean, there are people on Twitter who do present Erdogan as an anti-imperialist, and in fact, Turkey has historically, you know, not just under Erdogan, there has you know, the Turkish intelligentsia are kind of schizophrenic on this mm. issue. Sometimes some elements have, you know, been keen to emphasize that they're part of Europe. Turkey is a modern society. You know, one of the reasons, for example, the headscarf issue was such an issue, you know, that, you know, women weren't allowed in the universities with headscarf was, you know, you know, was a class issue because like these upper class people didn't like these country bumpkins coming in and occupying their spaces with their different ways of life and etc etc it's like we don't wear we don't let you wear sneakers at oxford yeah ex yeah that kind of thing they they didn't like uh the cultural implications of it they like to see themselves as part of the mediterranean uh, world but then there's always been a kind of uh anti-imperialist elon to turkish nationalism on one hand turkey was founded in part as an or at least you can make the argument it was founded as an anti-imperialist struggle against European attempts to partition Anatolia following the end of the First World War, although that obfuscates another important dynamic, which was that it wasn't just an anti-imperialist struggle, it was also a struggle against the religious minorities that existed in, in Anatolia at the time as well. So there's always, you know, Ataturk is a kind of a protean figure in many ways. On one hand, a westernizer, somebody who embraced Latinization, uh, quote-unquote secularization, because Turkey was never secular in the sense that it was never a separation of Turk, church and state. Even under Ataturk, the mosque was run by the government, by a government directorate, right? Uh, it was just that Islam was excluded from public discourse on that level. Uh, so Turkey was never truly a secular state in that sense. Um, 
but you had this uh, uh, this kind of Western facing um, image of Turkey. At the same time, you had this tradition of resistance against imperialism. You have this trauma of the partition of the Ottoman Empire, which um, you know led to huge amounts of population for, uh, exchanges. You know, mm -hmm. the Armenian genocide, for example, was a knock-on effect of large numbers of Muslims fleeing the Balkans and fleeing Russia, and then... The mutual ethnic cleansing, cleansing of the Greeks, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and this, this, this was a centuries-long uh, process. So there's a kind of ambivalence in Turkey about imperialism, because on one hand, uh, you know, especially during the Cold War, Turkey and the Turkish right rallied behind uh, NATO. Uh, you know, in fact, many Turkish fascists were involved in the Gladio operations. Yeah, yeah the Grey Wolves, right? The Grey Wolves. big... Yeah. So there's a kind of schizophrenia uh, uh, on this. And, you know, the schizophrenia continues in Turkey's discourse today. So on one hand, you know, on one hand, Turkish capitalism has done quite well out of its relationship with the West, right? Turkey is able to act the way that it does because it's under the protective umbrella of the United States. You know, uh, Iran, on the other hand, pursues the same po foreign policy uh, imperatives that it did under the Shah, it's just now it's doing them in opposition to the United States and has a far tougher time. So there's a kind of discursive anti-imperialism. And as with so much uh, anti-imperialism, uh, it, it becomes a cultural anti-imperialism, which is fundamentally a right-wing anti-imperialism. So there's a lot of emphasis on these culture wars, you know, turning the Hagia Sophia, mosque, uh, uh, Sophia into a mosque, uh, a good culture wars thing, demanding that the international community refer to Turkey as Turkia, another mm -hmm. kind of cultural war thing. So this is kind of like uh, discourse that Turkey is a great power and its enemy is the United States. But at the same time, Turkey, uh, you know, Turkish foreign policy makers will be making that argument to what, especially for the domestic audience, but in the United States, there'll be... Is, is, there, uh, is there like a, a term for wokeism in Turkey? Like in, how in France now they say le wokeisme or whatever? I'd, is there a Turkish I, version? I don't know, but... There, they might be a few years behind us in that respect, but maybe they'll get it soon. But there is definitely... You're seeing the kind of global culture wars coming to Turkey. I mean, there's always been this culture war in Turkey because Turkish politics is, you know, framed as a kind of factional fight between the secular and the religious, which has given it this culture war... Uh, aspect to it, which kind of obfuscates the class dynamics uh, to it, and led many leftists to completely misread what Erdogan uh, was all, all about. Many leftists, you know, they viewed Erdogan as bringing the real bourgeois revolution to Turkey mm. and thought that, you know, he would usher in a kind of liberal democracy in Turkey, which Turkey had never fully achieved following the 1908 constitutional revolution. Um, because they viewed Turkish society as being a conflict between the state and society. Whereas if you look at this conflict, it's actually between a kind of provincial petty bourgeoisie, rising bourgeoisie, and the kind of the state elements and those elements which had benefited from state largesse, such as the handing over of Armenian and Greek properties, uh, state investment, et cetera, uh, uh, you know, import substitute industrialization, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this, you, you have this kind of schizophrenic character which is expressed at times with a very fierce anti-imperialism, but in practice, Turkey functions. It's a NATO country. I mean, one of the things annoys me 
about Turkish nationalists. Please go off. Is that you know they'll always complain about Kurds working with the United States, and they'll and talk about imperialist plots. And it's like my friends, there is literally a U.S. military base, like in in Turkey. Turkey is part of NATO. Turkey don't they have our nuclear missiles on their they've got on their soil? they've got nuclear missiles on, 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 on their soils. The United States has been a key backer of this Turkish state all these years. Uh, they Turkey got away with invading Cyprus, right? Uh, yeah. They got a little bit of still a frozen conflict still, fifty years later, right? St- still a frozen conflict, and then they're going to. Do the anti-imperialist Turkish nationalists also think that Turkey is not friends with Israel? Yeah, they they also yeah they also like to emphasize that. Well, maybe in the past some elements were pro-Israel, but you know now <laughs> we're not. Which is you know Erdogan just again plays the cynical game. It's easy to spout off some anti-American rhetoric when there's no cost to it. I mean, yeah. whatever you say about the Iranians, they live by their anti-Americanism. Whereas Turkey, this anti-Americanism is largely for you know domestic consumption. It's used to delegitimize opposition, uh, and you know you see you know you see it taking on a very cultural element to it. You know, it becomes this cultural anti-imperialism where everything come, come you know it's it's about decolonizing symbols. You know. I think I think we should put a pin in the um, the various uh, contradictions of uh, anti-imperialist politics in this day and age. So I think we want to talk about that on the bonus side with your uh, compact piece. I think to bring it back, it seems to me that um, Erdogan winning or losing, he seems like a very interesting figure right now because he's this Bonapartist figure in the same way that Putin is, that uh, Modi is, right? Because the BPP existed before Modi. Um, and of course, uh, Orban in, in Hungary, this sort of thrust that we've seen recently. And yet, is he even an effective Bonaparte? I mean, it seems like the inflation crisis they're going through has to have some sort of effect, has to be having some sort of effect on his electoral chances, right? I mean, certainly. I mean, there's growing discontent in the country. Um, You know, Turkey was relatively lucky after 2008. There was a contraction in the economy. But, you know, the Turkish, uh, the managers of the Turkish economy were able to, you know, ramp up credit and kick the ball of crisis down the road. They're now paying for that crisis. I mean, what you have... The butcher's bill always comes it, through. It, it comes sooner or later. And, you know, I think this is actually the true impasse of Turkish politics because however much, you know, people uh, are um, askance at Erdogan's unorthodox monetary policy, it's not like the alternative is much better. You know, we have this... It's, I, it seems to me that the crisis in the country is a kind of inevitability of Turkey being part of a global capitalist system. And... You're either going to have this kind of hyperinflation issue that's taking place, or they're going to do some restructuring, which throws millions of people out of work. So right. it seems that you know there's a Turkey is between a rock and a hard place. Certainly, seems like everybody is right now, right? Turkey not being unique at all in this. You talked about this sort of limbo that the UK is in right now. Feels as though the United States is in a limbo as well, and it seems like almost the entire world is. Everyone's waiting for the next shoe to drop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the early AKP period, I mean, you know, this may be an unpopular opinion, but in a lot of countries, neoliberalism actually led to the, you know, uh, the embourgeoisment and uh, of large sections of society who had been previously excluded from the modernization project, right? 
So neoliberalism in Turkey, you know, it's not just about, um, it wasn't just about, you know, cut, you're privatizing industries, et cetera, et cetera. It was also about targeted welfare, for example, which the RKP used to shore up its base of support. Uh, um, there was a kind of backdoor Keynesianism through cheap construction and the legalization. Oh, the, with the earthquake, we saw the fruits of that. We saw the fruits of that, exactly. We have this cheap, you had this huge construction boom. You had, um, you know, you had this situation, for example, where people were given the, you know, people who had moved to the Gejikondu, which is the favelas, you know, were given control of their land, sold their land to developers, you know, common story, you know, you have a shitty little shack, you get the deed, you sell it to a developer, they build an apartment block, you get three of the apartments, you can rent two out, keep one for yourself, and then, you know, every, you know, so you had this big boom taking place, uh, you know, and construction, as you know, is always a Wild West industry anyway. Oh, yeah. And then you have the political representations of that, which was the Gezi Square uprising, which I remember very clearly. That was, what, 12 years ago or so? It yeah. was over gentrification in uh, Istanbul? Yeah, so, I mean, this is what you saw with a lot of, uh, you know, even during my time in Turkey, when I was living in Turkey in the 2000s, you know, you saw enormous amount of development, uh, you know, shopping centers, new mosques, new houses, and of course, hand in hand with that was a certain degree of gentrification. And obviously, uh, you know, for this early period of the IKP, there was no real opposition. There was like the parliamentary opposition was absolutely, you know, a non-entity. It was fighting this cultural war about the threats against secularism and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, the opposition to the economic changes that took place, you know, took to the streets, you know, and Gezi Square, uh, you know, get the Gezi Park, uh, that was uh, a protest that took place in Taksim Square. And there was a huge plan to redevelop Taksim Square, which would have destroyed this park. And that became a lightning rod for, you know, those kind of elements, marginal elements as well, but, you know, small elements uh, on the, you know, on the left, the environmental movement, uh, as well as those kind of generally discontented with the direction of the country, you know, to come out in the open and protest. And this became kind of the mask off moment for the government when they, ripped out, you know, whipped out the batons. And uh, it was a teachable moment for many Turks because, you know, they were seeing on the TV that, you know, their protests were being misrepresented and ignored. And, uh, you know, a lot of Kurdish people were like, yeah, well, what do you think they've been doing for the last 70 years whenever there's a protest in, in the Kurdish region of the country? There you go, yeah. So, um, so you know, that was, that was a kind of expression of this growing uh, discontent because, you know, the formal opposition, I mean, to rewind a little bit, when the, because of the vagaries of the Turkish electoral system, which has a 10% threshold to get representation in the parliament, uh, because the election which brought the IKP to power, there were a lot of parties got, that got, you know, 5 6%, and the outcome was that the IKP just got this huge majority with like 35% of the vote, and the main opposition, the Republican People's Party, which is the uh, the spiritual successor to the party founded by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, you know, they became the opposition at a kind of two-party system after a decade in which it had been like endless coalitions, political instability, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And the opposition just really seemed out of church because the RKP were running a kind of bread and butter campaign on like improving people's living standards, talking about all the like services that they were bringing, the new hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, 
the cadre of the Republicans, People's Parties were crying that, you know, like there's a woman with the headscarf and, you know, Islamism's about to take over. We don't want to be in Iran. So they really kind of got outplayed. And, you know, the IKP was drawing support not just from uh, provincial conservatives, that provincial bourgeoisie, new people who had come to the cities, you know, peasant populations, former peasant populations, but also, like I said, liberals, Kurds, other groups who felt alienated by the Kamalist system and saw the AKP, who along with these economic reforms were bringing some of these like democratic reforms, uh, who were making noises on resolving the Kurdish issue for, you know, this mm. kind of things. Uh, you know, you, you, you had a kind of like um, position where the opposition was just totally not up to the task of uh, uh, critiquing the Justice of, and Development Party, which obviously even during this period should have been critiqued. And, you know, their leader, Deniz Baikal, I mean, you know, typical Turkish po politician, absolute loser, can't win an election, uh, just stayed in office until literally he was ousted because of a sex scandal, right? Like, mm. that was the only thing that ousted him. So you have... You had this kind of uh, period of just where there was just no real opposition. When Erdogan went to the second election, he did even better than before because people were pleased, right? Mm. It looked like the country was going in the right direction. And for many people, they just had access to things that they didn't have before, right? You know, having access to shopping centers, to, to, to consumer... New public transportation, New public right? transportation. Uh, you know, it was just very, it was a very bread and butter thing. Now, where I think a lot of people miscalculated was that, uh, and I would get account myself in this as well, uh, was that they took the democratic reforms that were taking place during this period at face value. Whereas in retrospect, it seems that rather these reforms that were taking place, which also included very famous uh, court cases against those accused of launching a coup, that again... Oh, Golan, what was the gentleman's name they blamed? Well, that's a different... There was different a, coup. I'm sorry. So there was there was a, a whole load of military officers, right wing nationalists, former Maoists, who were all arrested as part of this Ergenicon campaign, which was you know this idea that the military was going to do this you know secular coup, right wing mm. nationalist coup against uh, Erdogan. They were prosecuted as well, uh, you know, and, and they were prosecuted with the assistance of the Fethullah Gulen movement, which was an ally of Erdogan at the time that did a lot of Erdogan's dirty work because they had good networks within the police force and the judiciary. Uh, you know, they would, uh, and they had a big media empire as well. Uh, and we thought, you know, a lot of people were like, well, this is positive, you know, that getting rid of these old authoritarian structures, removing the military's tutelage over the, you know, democratic um, organs of the Turkish state, you know, and we, maybe we're moving to a kind of more uh, uh, European-style uh, democracy where there may be some progress in the country. But, you know, what happened after Gezi, we see this, uh, we see a growing crisis. Erdogan's coalition begins to fray apart. The Gulenists, uh, who are their own movement, who are allied with Erdogan, they turn against Erdogan, and, you know, they go for the king, and they fail. Hmm. And they miss. And they miss. They miss, and they get purged. And this kind of culminates, really, in, 20, in 2015, where Erdogan goes to the elections and 
loses his majority, and he loses his majority for two reasons. Uh, in Anatolia, a strong base of uh, his support, many of his voters are not happy with his liberalizing reforms. They're not happy with his Kurdish opening, talking about resolving the Kurdish question, and they start voting for the National Action Party, Mehepe, Mili Hareket Partisi, who are the Grey Wolves, who are the fascists, right? Mm. And then in the Kurdish regions, where the AKP had also got a lot of votes, a lot of their Kurdish voters switch over to supporting Hedep, which is the uh, pro-Kurdish, although, you know, people call it a Kurdish party, but it's a, I would say it's more of a kind of Corbyn-esque, Syriza-esque, social democratic. This, this is separate from the PKK. This is not the revolutionary this Kurdish is, party. This is not the revolutionary, uh, 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 this, is not, this is not the guerrillas in the mountain, but obviously there are connections, overlaps, at least in the, the support, you know, many su- people who are sympathetic to the PKK would obviously support uh, HDP as well, although the actual linkages between the two organizations are, you know, f- far firmer. Uh, there's, a, there's a basically a the leadership of the HDP is distinct from the leadership of the PKK. Mm. Even though it's not like Sinn Fein and IRA. No, it, and it couldn't be because if it was like that, they would have all been arrested a lot earlier. You know, uh, they have. To, they it have seems, to, tr- it, to me, it seems like more like a just a nationalist popular front of Kurdish parties, right? There's like it's a it's a popular it, front which includes a strong Kurdish element, but includes other left wing groups in Turkey, labor mm-hmm. unions, you know, progressives. It be, basically they went from being a it's it's complicated, but the Kurdish parties in Turkey, which really begin to take off in the nineties, they come out of the social democratic parties in Turkey. Uh, the and, and there's been a series of them who they kept getting shut down, Hedep, Hedepa you know, they, there's, a, there's an acronym soup of different parties. Mm. But what happened in the mid-2000s, there was a real effort to say that this party is not a Kurdish party. It is a left party that is a voice for all kind of marginalized and excluded left-wing groups in Turkey, right? So let's jump to the election that's going on next week. It seems like Erdogan could lose, like, but although, as you said before, you never know what's gonna what he's gonna pull in the next week. So who would replace him? Well, that's a good uh, that is a good question. Well, to if you indulge me for a moment, just to return back to the twenty fifteen election because I think it provides important context and explains why Erdogan is a smart Bonapartist. Uh, basically, when he started losing support to the nationalists and the Kurds he basically reorientated his party and brought back many of those right-wing elements, including the, um, including people who had been arrested during the Ergenicon uh, court cases, brought them into his coalition and shifted away from this earlier coalition, which included liberals and Kurds, towards a new coalition, which integrated the uh, uh, National Action Party, the fascists, and you know nationalistic Eurasianist elements into the government. So you had this kind of reorientating of Erdogan's base to create this kind of nationalist uh, coalition. And then obviously this this process accelerates. There's the failed coup, which is another good reason for Erdogan to purge people from the state institutions. You have a referendum that turned Turkey into a presidential system, which gave Erdogan a kind of more power. And you know. In face of all these kind of crises, uh, this, this, this kind of grab for power, combined with these economic crises, which are being ratcheted up, 
combined with the fallout of the civil, uh, Syrian civil war, the large number of refugees flowing into the country, all these things are coming, coming together to kind of undermine support for the AKP. And we're seeing uh, a new, uh, a kind of new coalition of opposition uh, uh, forming, centered around the Republican People's Party and drawing support from, you know, from Kurds, from liberals, and f- even from elements of the uh, far right. The, mm. the, the fascist party split uh, and a, a new breakaway party called the E-Party was created uh, and that party has joined the opposition coalition. So the opposition... So it's a united front against um, fascism, but including fascist elements. Yes, it's a united... That's probably the best way to think about it. It's a united front against fascism, uh, including fascist elements. Uh, and you know the opposition, in, in the context of economic crisis and in the context of this earthquake, which magnified a lot of the problems that people already knew about, you know, like the shoddy construction, the corruption. Yeah. And not just this. I mean, before, you know, even before this, there were all these scandals coming out. There was like one mafia guy ran off to the Gulf and he was like telling everybody about all the dodgy things <laughs> that they were doing. Like the minister of interior, who is some people see, Suleiman Soylu, who some people see as possibly Erdogan's successor. You know, people joke about him that he's like the number one drugs kingpin in the country. They call him the Yerli Vemili Escobar, which is like the, the, the indigenous Pablo Escobar. You know, uh, they've got that weird speed type stuff everybody uses bump. in like Syria. Bump. What's it called? It's called bump. 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 They have bump. it. They have it in England. It's, it's speed cut with cocaine. But uh, yeah, people were like asking questions like, why are there three flights? In New York, they just call that cocaine. Why, why are there three flights a day from Caracas to Istanbul? <laughs> by Turkey? What, what are they doing on those airplanes? You know, so uh, there's very popular direct flight. <laughs> so there's all these, there, there were all these, you know, issues coming up. Uh, you know, the government was becoming, you know, I, I read a statistic somewhere that over a million people have been charged with terrorism in Turkey. Uh, they've been, you know, Crack. Jesus uh, Christ. There's like a lot of. I thought Atlanta was bad. There was a lot of uh, arbitrariness. You know, obviously after the coup, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were like dismissed from their jobs or faced an investigation on spurious, you know, very spurious charges. Erdogan has moved against his opponents, anyone who seemed like they were popular or a threat. So uh, Saladin Demirtas, the leader of the HDP, for, for like no reason at all, was like just chucked in jail on trumped-up charges of nothing, and he's still in jail for that. Um, you know, does, does Erdogan even lose power? Or, I mean, like, leave office if he loses? Could, could there not just be a coup at that point? I mean, this is, this is the... An auto-coup, I guess? This is, the, this is the question I have. Like, I'm... Certainly, compared to any previous election, it seems that there is a chance that the opposition could win if the election is fair enough or free enough. You know, in previous elections, even though there was discontent, I th- would say on balance, Erdogan probably would have won anyway, right? Mm. You know, I think he would have won a lot of f- fair elections, even if he was losing support. The opposition figures were not particularly charismatic. Uh, you know, Kılıç Daoğlu, who's the JHP leader, is like a very uninspiring uh, character who, like his predecessor, has lost numerous elections to Erdogan, but still doesn't vacate his seat as leader. But, you know, by circumstances have thrust him into a position where he had, people are putting a lot of hope in him, right? People are putting a lot of hope in him to deliver the country from uh, Erdogan. 
Now, the question I have is always, well, to, you don't need to rig everything to rig an election, right? When they held the constitutional revolution, uh, sorry, constitutional referendum in 2017, uh, that turned, that basically just formalized Erdogan's kind of presidential dictatorship. You know, Erdogan had become president earlier. Technically, the president did have, didn't have a lot of power, but the reality was Erdogan was calling the shots and his prime ministers were kind of just, you know, just his grand viziers doing his bidding. The constitutional referendum formalized this situation by creating the strong executive presidency. Now, that referendum was very close, and there, was a, uh, and there has been accusations that, you know, a little bit of selective vote rigging here and there, you know, pushed Erdogan over the edge. At the very least, that referendum was held under the conditions of emergency law, OHAL, the Olanost, uh, yeah, Olanost, yeah, yeah, the, the extraordinary state of emergency, right? Uh, so, you know, how fair can there be an election when you have an extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, martial law in the country? Mm. So what's going to happen this time? Well, things have been ugly. The election campaign has been ugly uh, because these guys have a lot to lose. You know, they're terrified. They've been persecuting their opponents. Oh, yeah. And, and also uh, making de facto the powers that they use to do that. So that pre presumably whoever comes next could you do the same against them legally, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, one of the things I think that, the, you know, there were numerous potential candidates for the presidency amongst the opposition, including the mayor of Istanbul, who is an opponent of Erdogan, who Erdogan tried to kind of forced basically a rerun of the local elections because he lost, his candidate lost the first time and so tried to run it again to get his candidate in but lost again and now is, you know, obviously that the, uh, the mayor of Istanbul uh, was now prosecuted by him. Uh, the mayor of Ankara, another guy, you know, these, these were popular figures. Uh, Kilic Daoglu in a, uh, is a kind of very uninspiring guy and I think one of the things that people might be looking towards to him is the fact that he is an uninspiring guy. That he, right. That they want... Get the charismatic guy out of there, have like a Joe Cho Biden type figure who will just bumble his way through and bring normalcy and everything. Exactly. So that's what I think the hopes... That's what the hope is. But there was a lot of obstacles to that. Firstly, will this be an election in which the popular will is represented if... Erdogan doesn't win the election, number one. Number two, even if Erdogan lost, there's still a big chance that his party will be the dominant party in the parliament. Uh, Erdogan's party lost its majority in the last elections, but they maintained their majority by an alliance with the National Action Party, the fascists. If the National Action Party and the AKP dominate the parliament, that's going to be a problem for any new administration, uh, even in the best-case scenario. And the electoral system is geared towards you know, benefiting, or at least benefits the RKP in a way that it doesn't with other uh, other political parties. So there are there are a lot of unknown uh, factors. This election campaign is being fought very dirtly. You know, the pictures of the local government administrators in Ezram bussing people to go break up an opposition rally, not a good sign. Not a good sign. Not a good sign. And this is, remember, this is also a potential two-round election because the, if nobody wins a majority in the first round, there'll be a second round. And I can only imagine, you know, I, I think most people think it's going to go to a second round, uh, and I can only imagine how dirty it's going to get in a second round 
because the stakes are extremely high. These guys have been in power for a long time. People are angry at them. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of anger about all those construction companies with ties to the government who built these shoddy buildings which fell down and killed people. There's a lot of annoyance uh, about that. There's a lot of frustration uh, about that. No, I was going to say, we're at about an hour, which is how long we like to keep the main episodes. We didn't even touch on your article on anti-imperialism. We haven't talked about the Kurdish struggle or, or anything like that. Do you have another half hour or so, and we'll go behind the paywall and For you, a little more? I have all the time in the world. What a mensch. Uh, tell folks where they can find you. I can tell people right now that you can find us occasionally on the Antifada Twitch stream, uh, streaming uh, Victoria 3 multiplayer together. But where else can they find you? Uh, you can find me on This Is Revolution. Uh, that's on YouTube, podcasts, all those good places. Um, I occasionally write for Jacobin or for even for Compact. So I'm now uh, a fascist as well. So uh, there's that. And also on my new KSMU radio show, called Talk, hey. Talking History on our local NPR affiliate where I talk with historians about, cool. about different historical things. So That's dope. Which you can, if you're not in southwest Missouri, you can download from the KSMU website as a podcast. So I'm doing this, that, and the other. Uh, another, and sublation too, right? Not at sublation anymore. Me and, oh, you're not. Okay. Me, me and Doug Lane had a creative difference. Ooh. Uh, Maybe something to talk about behind the paywall. Yeah, it's nothing bad. I still have Doug's uh, HBO account, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take it to the parrot room, and we'll share that (laughs) password for everybody, and you can listen to that at patreon.com slash theantifada.